This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how Rome's crisis of the 3rd century truly began? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And what do you buy a London and New York City? You are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, are you ready to rumble? I am so ready to rumble, Paul. And what's interesting about today's episode is there's actually some of a link between our two segments. We are, I'm sure fans of history will know what we're coming to approach right now. This is really when Rome's infamous crisis of the 3rd century really starts to kick off. And definitely for this first time, we're definitely going to both have to be looking to factors as to how this crisis began. But Paul, could you inform us into what exactly we're going to be talking about in today's episode? I can definitely tell you, as we teased in our previous episode, that this would go into the category of further covering the Sassanids. And this is when the penny drops for Rome that they have a new and dynamic problem on their eastern doorstep, whereas the Parthians had largely been Cold War hot peace situation. The Sassanids are now something else entirely under Ardashir I. And this plays directly into the crisis of the 3rd century because the Roman emperor Severus Alexander most definitely meet his fate there, but we'll get into that in the later segment. What we can say for sure is that all of the pieces are moving on the chessboard to a very complicated picture in terms of the crisis of the third century that is going to be a legitimate challenge for you and I to really accurately describe and give the real thrust of the history that's happening here. But we are a team, we will do it, and we begin today. So yeah, let's get into this, Paul. And I believe you're going to kick us off for this episode. And speaking of kicking things off, Paul, uh, you feel Rome got kicked in a certain area in your segment, from what I can see from your notes. Yeah, uh, yes, 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 indeed. I believe we can very we can describe it in a genteel way by saying kicked in the nether regions. <laughs> yes, yeah, kicked in the nether regions. That's for sure. But Paul, would you like to share with us the obligatory, mandatory, all important AD history ground rules? 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Tell us all about this infamous nut-kicking the Sassanids gave Rome. 
So when I was researching up on this episode and looking at the various elements that are involved in how the crisis of the third century came to be, and specifically this first military encounter between Rome and the rather nascent Sassanid Empire, it was the quote, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And those words are attributed to one Leon Trotsky. And it describes the situation that Rome and Severin Alexander would most certainly be facing in this early decade. But I think it is best to set the scene. In 231 AD, Adashir led the Sassanid storm to the gateway of the Roman Empire, then in one of its furthest gates east in Mesopotamia. Seizing the initiative, it is believed Adashir may have gone as far as Syria, which is quite the advance. This is when the penny drops for Rome and its decision makers about the new Sassanid threat that had succeeded the Parthians. This would prove Alexander's undoing, both in terms of how he executed the campaign in 233, its outcome, and how he tried to sugarcoat its outcome upon his return to Rome. Alexander was in many ways the good egg that Elagabalus was clearly not. He was a notable reformer on several fronts. However, all told, we do not know a terrible amount about his rule from when he ascended in 222 up to this point in 231 and the Sassanid invasion of the Roman East. Yet there are a few things that scholars seem to believe was indeed the case about his rule prior to this time. It's interesting, Paul, because up until this point, we seem to have quite a good understanding of uh, Rome's emperors. You know, you go back to some of the big figures like Augustus and Hadrian. We know all about their like birth, their upbringing. But then we have this guy, and it hasn't been that often, especially in regards to the history of the emperors, that there's been gaps in the knowledge. It's just, I just thought of worthwhile to mention this here. Perhaps this is a good sign of Rome's beginning to decline here that they aren't keeping as good track of their leaders anymore. That's actually an interesting point. I think it's probably a combination of a few things. One is, as we know, when it comes to emperors that Rome was not particularly proud of, they usually made big efforts to try to write them out of their history, which is both tragic and hilarious at the same time. Not to get too macabre here, but we've discussed this at length before. Mm. And on top of that, it's interesting the sources that we do have whether it be Herodian especially or Cassius Dio, who are both writing about this, might I add, on their own. And then you have the deeply controversial history Augusta. So it's hard to know, but it's definitely Hmm. not a good sign. And when you have a revolving door of emperors, that's going to be a problem. Paper was quite hard to come by then, so it's hard to even like have time. By the time you found paper and quill, they're probably gone. Not that you know using quills. (laughs) <laughs> oh, goodness. That's no excuse for these people. They found ways to document everything. My goodness, you couldn't use the can without it being taken down. <laughs> the The Romans and their Byzantine successors, well, let's put it this way. When it comes to incredible documentation and bureaucracy, there's a reason why it's described in its most extreme form, Byzantine. 
Mm, yes. A little something to think about, certainly. Uh, yeah. So in the case of what most scholars say they do know, is that he seemed to have wise counsel around him. He didn't usually take decisions alone. And in some ways, his lack of independence, in fact, ended up being part of the reason that he came about and his undoing. So there were people like Cassius Dio that were around at his right hand. And he also apparently created a senatorial council, which was not terribly common because the the power and influence of the Senate always seems to wax and wane depending on whoever is sitting as emperor at the time. And in addition to that, his mother also had a dominant presence in his ear. Once again, in many cases, to his detriment. And, you know, it's it's funny. Sometimes they call him, in the case of Severin Alexander, Severin Alexander of Mama A. <laughs> Severin Alexander of Mama A, you know, just as a little jab at him. You know, this classic Roman chauvinism, but we, we know what we're dealing with here. This is this is playbook stuff. A yeah, textbook mummy's boy. <laughs> oh, oh boy. And it gets so much worse from here. In the case of religion, in this case, he apparently had a pretty tolerant and open attitude, which I think is interesting. Everything from not just the Greco-Roman gods and that pantheon, but he was much more tolerant and open to religions like Judaism or Christianity. You'll even find later in this episode, he actually spends a bit of time with a very famous Christian philosopher and theologian named Origen being tutored in Christianity at the behest of his mother is really quite fascinating. And the whole Christian theological doctrine and scholarship, Mm. Origen is one of the big names. So he's he's interesting in that respect. Mm. And he also has actually, prior to having a serious campaign, done quite a bit for the military, which if you've been listening to us for long enough and you've heard us cover Rome, you've probably come to the same conclusion we have which is that if you want to remain emperor and you want a long and successful rule, you have to have the military on side because more often than not, in some way or another, they're the ones who are the big power players and getting people in power and even more so when it comes to removing them from power. Yes. Quite quite interesting. And In the case of the military, there's a few things that are really notable and here they are. One is he provided formal legal protection for soldiers' property while they were on campaign. Of course, they also allowing for soldiers to name any heir of their choosing when it came to matters of inheritance, which apparently was incredibly rare because it was extremely limited in terms of choice for just regular civilians and subjects of Rome. They also could free slaves in their will. That's definitely an important thing. And also rights that have to do with property acquired due to military service could be claimed by by no one but them. All a big deal, especially when you're out on campaign, possibly for years. And the idea is partially the rewards that come after serving an extended period of time as professional military. Though what's interesting to note, especially when we start getting into his downfall, is that despite all of these really beneficial reforms, it didn't really seem to save him when it came to the military and the role they would play in his downfall. Spoiler alert, not only would the military play a big role in uh, Alexander's downfall, the military would rule the roost and decide who was emperor for quite some time going forward now. You're absolutely correct. 
There's no doubt yeah. about it. And that's going to be yeah. interesting. I'm looking forward to talking a bit more yes. about that later, to be sure. Yeah. So where the kick in the nether regions comes in, where the penny drops is actually in 231, when under the aforementioned Odyssey the first invaded the Roman Eastern provinces, most notably Mesopotamia, parts of Syria, and Cappadocia. And I'm curious, because we talked about this last time in terms of the histories that are being written about the Sassanids and Adashir I by Cassius Dio and by Herodian. They don't refer to him as Adashir I. They refer to him as Adaxerxes, basically Sassanid Persians. Xerxes, I think anybody who has seen 300 will most certainly understand where we're going with that and mm. the importance of it and the unique nature of the fact that it seems to be re-emerging after a long time with the Parthians, who don't quite hold that same Persian legacy for whatever reason. Such an invasion was considerable in scale, with significant strategic implications. The region in question had been fought over numerous times between Rome and Parthia in the previous two centuries, and largely has ever since Rome and Parthia first... <laughs> contacted each other there was always going to be butting heads of power in that region just given its significance for both sides and of course now the Sassanid successors are no different in that regard so rome most certainly can't stand for this and neither can severin alexander but one thing that is definitely the case here is that we haven't seen this kind of initiative and momentum from the Parthians that we are experiencing and seeing now from the Sassanid Persians. And I find that utterly fascinating. And I'm very curious to find out more and study more mm. exactly what the biggest element of change was that really defined the difference and allowed the very different outcomes to occur between the two in a very short period of time, especially vis-a-vis -vis Rome. But mm. what is undeniable, as I said prior, is that Rome most certainly could not stand for this. And undoubtedly, they did not, in which case they began preparing a major strategic counteroffensive against the Sassanids. So in response to the invasion of Roman Mesopotamia, parts of Syria, Alexander authorized the planning of a major counteroffensive operation against Adashir and the Sassanid Persians, this was a major strategic effort by the Romans. And the Roman planning, for the most part, for this invasion was divvied up into three major portions in what we'll call the Eastern Theater. So basically what they did was this. They assembled a large army of legions that was an army, almost an army group, if you would call it that, because the whole invasion with all its constituent parts, usually, I believe, it was somewhere between... 70 and 100,000 troops in the case of the Romans, which was, it was certainly comparable to what the force Caracalla had what, that we discussed in the prior episode. And that they would enter Armenia and travel through the southern Caucasus during the summer months. There was a second army that would advance to the Tigris and then the Euphrates. So they would be in that general area between the Tigris mm. and the Euphrates, which of course is one of the classic ancient boundaries of world history that still ridiculously relevant today. That's literally where the term Mesopotamia comes from. It means uh, in the middle of two rivers. So it means in the middle of rivers. Meso means middle. Pot means like a river. Potamia means middle of rivers. That one I do know for sure. 
Name explains gonna name explain. <laughs> and then there would be a third army that would sit in an advanced somewhere roughly east of Palmyra to act as a reserve. Essentially, what is described was largely envisaged as a pincer movement by the two advanced armies at the front, the one from Armenia and the one that is in the proximity of the Tigris and Euphrates, simultaneously invading from the Sassanids north and the Sassanids west. So this sounds like a pretty uh, large-scale invasion Roma planning here. Oh, yeah. D- does it compare much to previous um, campaigns uh, Rome have had against Parthians in the past? Like This seems like a big deal. We haven't really mentioned anything like this already on AD history. It's a big deal, but it might not be as big a deal as you think for certain reasons. So as I mentioned, in terms of the number of troops, when you're talking between 70 and 100,000, from what I understand, it's roughly comparable to the force that Caracalla had when he was massacring the Parthians that we discussed in the prior episode. And in addition to this, apparently how they set it up and their axis of advance and all the strategies and, and some of the specific tactics were very similar to the invasion of Parthia that Septimius Severus that we discussed at length used in his invasion of Parthia. So it's not rewriting in the big picture how it's done or that it's somehow completely unprecedented. But when we start getting into some of the details is where things start getting a little interesting. And we'll see that not too long from now, but it's a damn good question. They're essentially trying to execute a pincer movement. And if anybody is not familiar with a pincer movement, you basically have two forces that are separate and they are advancing in a way where they meet at a third point. And usually a pincer movement is often used when you're trying to cut off or encircle enemy forces. So just imagine two major armies looking to meet at a a agreed upon point geographically that would allow them to encircle their enemy most of the time. This is where things start getting interesting is really comes down to more of the details and planning and personnel of this particular campaign. And Alexander took rather actually extraordinary measures to properly plan and execute the campaign against the Sassanids. He made certain that all related officials in Syria and Western Asia Minor had the authority and resources to clear out the Eastern Mediterranean of pirate activity so as to guarantee the army's maritime supply lines from Rome were unhindered. That's strategic thinking, without a doubt. Mm. And the fact that they are worried about this is, is, is in and of itself interesting. And the fact that he thought about it in advance makes all the practical sense of the world. Now, chances are he didn't think of this. Now, remember, because Severin Alexander, if we're talking about him personally, is not coming from a military background. He's not Septimius Severus. He's not even Caracalla, for that matter. And he's very dependent upon his those who have his ear, such as certain senators that come with him, or even his mom in this case, and various military professionals, generals, and commanders who he recognizes knows far more about this than he. But they're extraordinary measures that he most certainly signed off on with his imperial imprimatur. And at this time, Roman legions were what we call today a professional military, for the most part. And as the case today, 
and this is certainly true of our respective nations, you and I, Patrick. Well, let me ask you, do you remember the last time there was a draft in Great Britain? <laughs> no, I do not remember the last time there was a draft in Great Britain. I presumed, gosh, I presumed it would have been World War II, but is that not the case? You know, I'm not sure. I honestly, I honestly yeah. don't know. That's entirely uh, possible. I know here in the United States, we haven't enacted selective service since the 1970s at the end of Vietnam, even though hmm. selective service as a department and a program does still exist. Well, if you're a male over 18 years old, you don't necessarily have to sign up for selective service, but they make it incredibly difficult not to do so. Like, for example, if you were not to do it, and this is just a quick aside, you wouldn't be eligible for most, say, federal student loans to for going to college, things of that nature, so that they really do kind of box you in in that respect. Though at this point, we are largely a professional military, so it hasn't really been all that relevant. So just a little something to think about. Just like today, for the most part, Rome at the time is what we would call both an all-volunteer and all-recruited military. As far as Rome and its Republican day, they had their conscripted citizen soldiers. But that era had largely passed, yet despite the general orientation they had undertaken, there are apparently commemorative inscriptions from various locations in the empire honoring those Roman subjects who either A, volunteered to fight in this war, or were chosen through the levy system, which, aka, a draft. So that's what they would call, that's another word for a draft. So if we were to believe that uh, Alexander was using drafted troops, do you think that would have affected Rome's chances in battle? Because as we know, Rome get their, they get their butt handed to them and we're so, we, we so often link uh, the military of Rome as like expert training, like expert position, well-trained. And this just doesn't sound like the Rome we all associate like battling with. Well, in their Republican past, obviously they had fought quite successfully with conscripted soldiers and using the levy system. Unfortunately, I don't know enough about Roman training and the exact quality of these conscripts, but I would say that for all intents and purposes, they're not professional military, so it's kind of hard to imagine that you can expect them to perform on that same level. I'm just imagining Dad's army at the moment, but in ancient Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, that that is a reference, Patrick. That that or, that is a reference. Or even was it Mash for you guys? I think I know it's not the exact same thing, but I think Mash was a sort of somewhat similar situation over on your side. Well, I mean, Dad's Army was not just a straight-on sitcom, as we know. Oh no, and, no, and it yeah. had very serious parts to it. As did Mash. I would say the big mm. difference, though, is that in the case of Mash, they were actually in theater in Korea. They were, yes, of course. It's interesting to think that the Korean War itself only lasted between two and a half or three years, and I think MASH lasted for 13 seasons. <laughs> well, a lot happened in Korea. I'm a big MASH fan. I, I, I really like MASH. Yes, MASH, I believe. If you know it, you know it, and you really like it. I know people who are obsessed with MASH, and I know people who have never heard of MASH. It seems to be one or the other with that TV show. It has a, a long-term following. It's mm. funny, but it, many times it can be dark. For the most part, how did it affect them? It's hard to imagine they would have performed as well as professional military, to say the least. Though it's incredibly noble that they stepped up if voluntarily or were drafted and followed through on it and went and fought on this campaign. And apparently, 
this is also something interesting because we're talking about the scale of this in terms of strategic redeployment. We're also seeing detachments from legions that are stationed on the Danube and the Rhine getting sent to the Eastern Theater for this campaign. So siphoning off troops from legions that are still stationed in places on the Danube and the Rhine, but sending them to reinforce the invasion that's upcoming that they're planning at that point in time. So you're seeing an incredible mobilization of people and strategic redeployment to undertake this campaign against the Sassanids. And as we know, at this sort of time period, like the Danube and Rhine weren't particularly quiet places, you know, like there, there were barbarians, Germanic barbarians coming down at Rome at this time too. So it was serious stuff to send them from the Danube and Rhine down there because they wouldn't have been peaceful places. You probably would have need troops stationed there. And we're going to find out a little bit more about that not too long from now because no, no, just because they have Rome has its eyes focused on the Eastern Theater does not mean the Germanic tribes are going away. So we're looking at an army between 70,000 and 100,000, which is a very large army yeah. split into those three parts. And basically what happens from here is Alexander ends up going to the Eastern Theater because, as we mentioned in the prior episode, there is this new kind of precedent after Marcus Aurelius that an emperor should be there not just for offensive, but also for defensive campaigns as well. There's no just delegating this to certain generals. And this is really a terrible thing for Severin Alexander because he doesn't have a clue in what he's doing. No, I've just seen one of your upcoming notes, so I carry on, about who Alexander brought to war with him. <laughs> yes. In addition to his counsel, he brought his mommy to war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gosh, yeah. this guy did have mummy issues. Now, this is one of the things that got him a lot of flack in yeah. the end, to be sure. Not many people bring their mothers to war. <laughs> so it kind of reminds me of how Lou Gehrig, famous Yankee, the Iron mm. Horse, anytime they were on the road, brought his mother with him. <laughs> I can't make this up. So I'm not no, going to I'm not no. going to I'm not going to even try to pretend that I, I I get it. But most people don't bring their mom to war, but no. Severin Alexander most certainly did. And it certainly raised more than a few eyebrows. It's also worth mentioning he was quite young, I think like by the end of his reign, like, he was would have been a teenager still by now, even if a teen. He, he's in his early correct? 20s at this point, I believe. Early 20s, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so he had, he's he had a, young, a 13 year reign. He came in in 222. Yeah. And died in uh 235. So he's you know he's in his early twenties for the most part, mm. and yeah, he still has his mom with him. Make of that what you will, guys. We have nothing more to say. You can decide. <laughs> in any case, so as this strategic mobilization is taking place, and there's this big, complicated, and sophisticated effort going on to launch this great strategic counteroffensive against Sassanids and Odysseus the first. Severin Alexander was also known for having being more pacific in nature when it came to undertaking military campaigns. Because, like I said, he doesn't have a military background. And I say pacific insofar as relative to Roman emperors. <laughs> Rome is always fighting somebody, and if they can't find somebody, they'll just fight themselves. Yeah. He knows he's out of his element, and it's clear that he's out of his element. It's fair to say that he knew nothing but peace in his personal life. That's something that Herodian is very sure to mention in his histories, though some might say that he's a better storyteller than historian. But once again, make of that what you will. 
as this continued, he summoned an envoy from Adashir as a last opportunity to come to a peaceful accommodation. This irks two different parties simultaneously. One, of course, is Adashir I. He thinks this is rather pointless, but at the very least, he sends an envoy to listen. The other group that this really irritates is military commanders and his troops. They want to get on with business, and they don't think there is any opportunity for the olive branch. And you know what? They were right. But once again, this comes back to the quote that we open the segment with, which is, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you, mm. which very, very aptly describes the situation that Severin Alexander now finds himself in. Adashir sends, I believe, a force of something like 400 as his envoy, and they list several demands that would call off the war, that would settle the dispute. And basically, he had four. One was to evacuate all of Roman Mesopotamia, evacuate most of, if not all of, Roman Syria, leave Armenia and Osroene to the Sassanids, and evacuate all of Asia Minor, e.g. Turkey. And I don't think it takes one who is well-versed in the science of the rocket to realize how unacceptable these demands were. For any competent Roman leader, for any incompetent Roman leader, this garbage ain't gonna stand. So why did uh, Adashir want such unrealistic demands? Did he believe the Sassanids deserved this land? Like, did he think, no, this is our land, we need it back, we deserve to have this? It seems a bit OTT. Well, I would say that, like any apt and skilled negotiator, you always ask for more than you believe that you can get. Because who knows? They might say yes. Though This seems hmm. fairly unlikely. For the most part, I think it was partially partially that, because there's always benefit in asking for better than you think you can accomplish. That's assuming you're willing to negotiate at all, and this really seems more like an ultimatum than a negotiation, to say the least. And on top of that, I really think he just wanted to get it on. And if he wasn't <laughs> going to get it on in war against the Romans, who knows? Maybe he can get a big bounty simply by asking. So, yeah. lesson guys... Never be afraid to ask, even though yeah. it was pretty clear that Severin Alexander or any competent or incompetent Roman ruler would have told him to go to hell, which is exactly <laughs> what happened. So they were obviously unacceptable. And the following campaign in the Eastern Theater was an outright disaster, but not initially. So we talked about that first army that was going through Armenia that would be advancing from the Sassanids north. And at that point in time, they had the ability to cross the Southern Caucasus in the summertime. And they actually had some initial success in some initial skirmishes that they had with the Sassanids in the fair weather months. But for the most part, that is pretty much the extent of the Roman success here. That is when things really, really go to hell. <laughs> Basically, this is what happened in a nutshell. Adashir and the Sassanids managed to essentially encircle and entrap both the Roman army approaching from Armenia and the one that was left and its duty to go and advance into the area of the Euphrates and the Tigris. And it was an absolute massacre. They were 
absolutely ripped apart by Odyssey the First and the Sassanids. I don't even know that you could. It, it's somewhere between a, a kick in the nether region, a punch to the solar plexus, or a really, really bad, bloody, broken nose. <laughs> I'm thinking it's probably one of the first two more likely. Yeah. And what's amazing about this is, as we were talking about a few episodes back when we were talking about the logistics and reality of strategy and, and how war tends to work even in a timeless fashion, is when both of these armies were effectively destroyed, they also lost a great many of their own in the retreat. And this was particularly bad for the army that had to retreat back through the southern Caucasus into Armenia, because by that time, it's late fall, early winter, and it's really friggin' cold. So you're dealing with issues due to cold, you're dealing to issues of lack of supply, you're dealing with issues having to do with disease. You just get wasted in this way. When mm. I think about how that retreat in particular was conducted and occurred, the first thing that comes to mind, though it's by no means the only example of this, so I think it is probably one of the best, I think about Napoleon's retreat from Moscow in the winter of 1812, yeah, where he started off and obviously very different campaigns with a strategically limited campaign, although be it with an enormous force far larger than he had ever commanded prior to that. He only wanted to go as far as Minsk to basically try and budge the hand of Tsar Alexander I. That didn't work. The Russians kept retreating into the interior like you do when you have an uninvadable country that is just a sixth of the world's landmass, then get to Smolensk, which you never should have gotten that far anyway, and then getting the big idea that you're only about a dozen days march from Moscow and then getting stuck there in the middle of summer because you don't have a decisive defeat of the Russian army on the ground, which of course was one of Napoleon's greatest flaws and greatest failures at Borodino. Think about how you imagine the retreat from Moscow. That's how I see the Roman retreat back into Armenia after getting their ass thoroughly whipped. So, and something else you mentioned there, uh, Paul, was about Alexander led from the rear. Do you think this had any sort of effect on his troops? Like, if I was in an army and our leader was all the way at the back, I'd be kind of like, hmm, are we being sent into a bloodbath here? Like, it kind of it doesn't bode well. This is interesting. So that third force was meant as a reserve, as I understand it, mm. where that they could be called in and they could basically hopefully be the reinforcements that save the day and turn the tide. More effectively, you can get a more decisively positive outcome if you're Rome. The problem is they didn't go. And that's exactly where Severus Alexander was stationed. He was stationed with that force. There are a lot of theories on leadership, and I'm sure... Some of it is certainly culturally derived, but we know what we think of in our world as leadership. And I think there's one quality that I would hope is more universal than not, which is the truest and most effective form of leadership is leadership by example. Hmm. I will not ask of you anything that I am not prepared to do myself. I will not ask of you to crawl through the mud to fight this enemy if I'm not doing it right next to you. Do as I say, not as I do, is by far one of the most effective and quickest ways to make any organization, whether it be a military or whether it be a white-collar office job, 
into an extremely toxic environment. On top of mm -hmm. that, the fact that the, that force didn't come to their aid, as I understand it, also leaves the really rather realistic impression that they were left to be slaughtered, and that Severin Alexander, despite the fact he's in theater, is not at the front with his troops. Because, think about it, guys. You at home, whether you are current military or former military, or whether you just work in an office or you're in some kind of organization, there's nothing worse than being left out to dry and having a leader who says, go and do this, but they're not willing to get in the mud with you and pave the way with you. It's just, it's insulting. And it's, it's almost criminally negligent in this case. I understand that he's the emperor and he doesn't want to get knocked off the top of his horse and he is a total neophyte when it comes to military campaigns. To say nothing about actually fighting on the front lines, get the cojones here, man. This is your job as emperor. Yeah, so do you think this is the main reason Rome performed so badly in this campaign, or do you think there were other fact key factors as well? Oh, there probably are many factors to this. One is, I think, to some degree, they probably underestimated the Sassanids. Not to say that you can necessarily outwardly conclude that, given the extensive preparations that were made for a campaign of this size. Certainly, they were taking them seriously. There's no question about that. Herodian, insofar as we can trust his account, very much pins this on lack of discipline and poor morale. He might even speak of the quality of the conscripted volunteer troops. I don't fully recall. But what is undeniable here is that in terms of the, the various elements that are involved, the plan from a strategic standpoint seems to have been generally sound. He had good people around him, but the Sassanids were more than one step ahead of them. You know, the fact that they get encircled and massacred. There are not many times when Roman forces get their rear end kicked in this kind of way. I don't know if this mm. is quite as bad as what happened at the Totenberg Forest, but it's pretty darn bad. There's no question about it. And if the penny is not going to drop for Rome now about what the Sassanids are and the threat that they now present in the absence of the fallen Parthian, they're never going to get it. But Herodian definitely talks about lack of discipline and lack of morale. And to be honest with you, you probably also have to consider quality of troops when you're talking about those that are drafted or volunteering simply for this campaign, working alongside the professional troops. Though, as a rule, and this is something that happens in a lot of military training scenarios, what you'll do if you want to train up a particular group or individual, whatever the case is, you mix them in with those who already know what they're doing. So that way it can kind of have an organic quality of improving quality overall. But largely they're talking about discipline. They're, they're talking about quality of troops, I think, and lack of morale. And morale is a serious thing. And that's really where the whole issue with Severin Alexander comes in. Because if your leader isn't truly leading and leading from the front, that's a problem. So I think that all plays in, Patrick. I don't mm. think it can. And, and it's a disaster. Now, in fairness, in fairness... One thing that is also the case is, undeniably, like I mentioned earlier, is the enemy of weather. And there's a reason why for most of the last 2,000 years and before that, and not until extremely recently, might I add, that we don't fight in the winter. There's a reason why the term the spring slaughter is a thing. Hmm. So all of these factors are happening at the same time. It's basically everything going wrong all at once. I think that seems pretty clear at this point. Yeah, it just so much was going wrong. And but then that didn't have to go wrong. Like Alexander could have known not to invade during the winter months. He could have been 
yeah, he could have thought, oh, maybe now no one else has done this during the winter, so maybe I shouldn't be doing this either. So we, we get to the outcome of this thing. And mm. at the very least, the one thing, and this is largely how Severin Alexander is going to be painting this from the political side of things when he gets back to Rome, which is that it's a great success because we, we stem the advance of the Sassanids. We recaptured most of Mesopotamia. And the I doesn't really have nearly the success in the remainder of his life against Rome that he had initially. That would go on to his later ancestors and successors, to be sure. And so when Severin Alexander gets back and he's trying, and this is roughly around 234, maybe a little 235 early, he's trying to paint this as a great success because of the reasons I just mentioned. And boy, can you imagine how pissed off the military was in terms of the veterans who managed to get back from that disaster were at seeing that occur. Yeah, probably quite annoyed. Just a bit. Just a teeny bit, to be sure. <laughs> and despite this, he does try to paint it as a victory, and but it definitely leads to his downfall. On top of that, and this is interesting, the German tribes also happened to invade. It was very close in proximity to the campaign that they were very much focusing on and mobilizing in a huge way out in the east. Though to Rome's credit as a whole, they did make preparations and they did manage to stem this. But all of these issues around this campaign and how embittered the military apparently became towards Severin Alexander, despite the things he had done for them in the past, very much led directly to his downfall. His own troops began to rebel against him. And he was basically pegged by them as a weak leader, that he was too easily swayed. He always seemed to be on the same note as the last person who had his ear, the last person he saw. Sometimes with certain leaders, that can be a show. But in this case, it really does not seem as if he had some great indomitable will. And so among the, the many things that they chucked at him in terms of harsh criticism had everything to do with his mother and the influence that she seemed to have over him, which is something they really resent, especially when you are talking about something that realistically, for the most part, was a terrible failure. It, at best, you could call that invasion, at best, a Pyrrhic victory. Of all the aspersions, one of the biggest targets is his mother. And apparently Herodian also goes really hard on her as well. Very difficult to parse out what's true and what's not. And you and I have talked in the past, and we, we've come across this in Rome a few times, where women can be and have been very influential towards certain leaders. Like, for mm -hmm. example, Livia, which is Augustus's second wife. She was the other side of the coin. You know, she had mm -hmm. an incredible strategic brain, and she was treated as very honored and respected even after Augustus's death, which was very rare. But in this case... It's not that they are willing to just shove aside the influence of women, because clearly it happens in a very significant way, but they hate it for the most part, at least as far as I've observed, when issues really crop up, when it starts showing publicly. This guy is so interesting in regards to his mother. Um, I'd kind of like to have Kristen, our regular contributor Kristen, on this episode to find out about this gun on the couch, talk about like maybe his Freudian issues or his Oedipus complex or something like that, because... It'd be interesting to dive into on that side of things. I will ask her the next time I see her, <laughs> to be sure. I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain. 
Kristen would have some very interesting things to say. And certainly Freud would not have any lack yeah. of things to say. No, but so it is Freud interesting be... because, of course, Caracalla also has his mother handling a lot of matters during his rule because he didn't particularly enjoy the various complexities and, you know, the really kind of petty issues that come with the day-to-day administration of the empire by a sitting emperor. He was a lot more interested in being out on the front, so he basically delegated it to her, though it didn't seem to be quite as problematic in his case. He was taken out for very different reasons. And of course, Elagabalus is its own thing, like we mentioned last time. And I think it's fair to say, Patrick, that we are at a point where our two segments perfectly intersect and where I can hand it off to you. This is such a fascinating, fascinating uh, period to read, to, to hear about, Paul. The Sassanids really rung Rome's bell in this uh, segment here. And Perfect that term. Ring, yeah, that ringing is only going to echo and resonate throughout the empire with uh, Alexander Severus's, or what remains of his reign as emperor, as we will find out in my segment. And who comes after him? Well, it was my pleasure kicking off ourselves into this crisis of the third century, where you will pick up in our third segment. But after a word from AD, we're going to answer your Patreon submitted question for us today. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a few words from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. So it is now time for our famous, beloved, the Patreon question middle section of the podcast. And we have a really fun one today, Paul. Uh, one of our patrons has asked us, what countries would we most like to visit based on their history? Uh, this is a really great question. So just to make things clear, this isn't like a time time machine question. That could be a whole podcast unto itself. Where would we go if we had a time machine? Yeah. This is obviously when we say now, we mean not pandemic now. We mean like 2019 now. Uh, when we can freely travel the world without worry of getting infected by a disease. Um, what countries would you like to visit the most? Uh, I just want to say first, for this one, uh, every country I've been to, whether I've gone there with an interest in that nation's history, I've been fascinated to find out the history when I'm there. Like Most most countries I go to, I go to some sort of museum and find out at least a bit about that nation's history. Like Say I went to Sri Lanka a couple of years back. I didn't know anything about Sri Lankan history. Uh, went there, found out about it. And fascinating stuff. So I'd say every country is worth going to, but there are some countries more than others where you want to go for the history. And I'm sure I'll be saying it for both of us, Paul. I'll just take this one off now. Russia. I'm sure you'll agree with that one. You literally just beat me to the punch. <laughs> so I don't think it's any secret at this point, given our numerous and, and sometimes strange references to Joseph Stalin that both Patrick and I have an affinity for Soviet history and and Russian history in general. You know, you can't divorce the Soviet experience from the Tsarist experience in many ways because there are certain similarities. You may be thinking to yourself, what the hell is he talking about? Well, let's just say we'll get into that discussion another time. (laughs) Definitely Russia. I mean, everybody, I'm sure there's probably more than a few people have seen commercials for Viking cruises. Are you familiar with that, Patrick? Viking cruises? Uh, I'm not familiar with that one exactly, but I get the idea. We have lots of sort of cruise sort of lines and whatnot over here, but I don't think we're a Viking. Yeah, basically, and this has, I think it's very largely present on the continent, is that you take basically a river cruise. So, okay, yeah. 
taking one down the Rhine or down the Danube, mm -hmm. and you stop at various cities along the way and things of that nature. And I remember, if I remember correctly, Viking Cruises actually started by offering cruises down the Volga. Yeah. So I, I would imagine it's probably via the Moscow-Volga Canal and then south down to pretty much like Kazan and the Caspian Sea. And if I were to choose even one of their cruises, that most certainly would be the one I'd want to see, especially because it stops in places like Volgograd, which is formerly Stalingrad. You know, they didn't actually rebuild the city Stalingrad. They just built a new one a little slightly north of there, I think. <laughs> and and seeing the Tartar Mamayev burial mound and, and the Motherland Calls monument, I think would be really incredible. And being able to see places like Moscow or Smolensk, St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad. That's really incredible stuff. That, obviously, because I'm a big proponent of studying the world wars, especially the second and, and the Soviet experience, I would love to be able to really be able to engage with that firsthand. I've always found Russian culture in general and the culture that it's managed to export to the world to be absolutely fascinating. But that, that's just one of my choices. What's one of yours? So Russia is definitely one for myself as well. I think personally what I'd love to do is the Trans-Siberian. That would be incredible Oh man, to do. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, yeah totally. Going yeah, all the way to Vladivostok. Yeah, some sort of incredible train journey like that. I wouldn't say no to. Russia is definitely near the top of my list. Somewhere else I'd really like to go to is China. I've, I, I've only ever had a stopover in China for um, a trip to Japan. To see the likes of the Great Wall and then see Tiananmen Square, that would be incredible. Like it's, it's a country with such a deep ancient history and we've already talked a lot about so far in this podcast. It'd be great to see these sort of places up close and personal. And of course, Italy, undoubtedly Italy. I've, I've, I've quite fortunately been to Rome myself and I went with my classics class when I was in college. I, went, I, I studied classical civilizations, we studied Rome, and I was fortunate enough to go with my classics teacher and she you know she she lives and breathes rome so it was such oh, a wow. good yeah such a good way to go see the country i mean you talk about italy then it starts getting awfully personal because you start talking about personal of history course, for of me course. both of my italian grandparents emigrated to the united states separately they met in the u.s interestingly enough in 1946 and my grandmother uh, was raised in a small farming community in the apennines called mintorno and if we're talking about the war that I always find so interesting in this case. Mintorno was the westernmost portion of the Gustav Line, that most famous of defensive German lines in the winter of 1943. Specifically, I think it's about 20 or 25 kilometers from the very famous Monte Cassino. So she endured all of that, which means German occupation, living on the front lines, living through Allied and Axis bombing, to be sure. And then, of course, where my grandfather came from, which was a small island called Ischia, which is the sister island to Capri. But from what I understand, Ischia has become more and more popular, especially with German tourists, uh, to be sure. What can I say? They've got good taste from what I understand. So that's very much in there as well. What's another one for you? So uh, going off the um, same sort of family personal history tangent, um, of course, I have, I have both my grandmothers come from different parts of the world. They don't, they don't come from the UK. Uh, one of my grandmothers comes from Malta, which is a tiny island nation 
kind of sitting, sit, I'm sure you know more too, sitting right. between Italy and North Africa. That's right. You're a quarter Maltese. Yes, um, I, I have been to Malta, and I've, I, I, their history is fascinating. They've got some of the oldest human civilization, like sort of records of human civilization, on that island. It's an incredible place. But in regards to my other grandmother, she comes from Ireland, and of course, I, I've been to just Dublin myself for a weekend, but to explore all of Ireland, and of course, to get to understand that history, because Ireland is a country, and of course, is also part of the UK with. A volatile, I guess is the word for it, incredibly volatile history. I'd love to know more about the troubles and see up close and personal for myself places like Derry, where Bloody Sunday happened. That would be incredible to see because Ireland is another nation with a fascinating history. I would say, if, if I'm going to cap it off for myself here, and yes, and for yourself, this is, yeah, this is by no means, guys, an exhaustive list. So don't don't take that are not mentioning certain places, meaning that we don't have serious interest in them and we wouldn't go there in a heartbeat. Simply, we, we have to have some form of brevity here. Yeah. But what I can say is that, well, one, of course, is your country. You're not missing much. <laughs> I, well, you know, speak for yourself there, my friend. I'm, I've always been an Anglophile. My wife is an Anglophile. Of course, the continent as well. You know, I've, I, I want to see Western Europe, France. Germany. I also would like to see places like Warsaw and Poland oh, yeah. or uh, any number of places. Mm. I really have a great interest in the Baltic states, which I think are really yes. very, very cool. And some of those post-Soviet states, not, not, not exactly bald and bankrupt style, but <laughs> you guys get the idea. And the other one that I think is incredibly important, incredibly personal to me for a number of reasons, has to be Japan. It has to be Japan. I've not been to Japan. I took the language for three years, and hey, I can write, my name is Paul in hiragana and katakana, and I have a little bit of this here. You know, I remember most of my hiragana and katakana, and obviously I also had to take a course on Japanese history back when I was in high school. And of course, my own wife is a quarter Japanese. She grew up with a Japanese grandmother in her home who emigrated to the United States after the end of the Second World War. She was mostly raised in what we know today as Manchuria, but then was known as Manchukuo, in a place that was known at the time as uh, Darien. It is now known in Chinese as Dalian. But for English, and prior to like 1905, it was also known as Port Arthur. So when the war ended and you had the Soviet invasion of Manchuria in the closing days of the war, her grandmother was forcibly exported by the Red Army back to mainland Japan, and I believe it must have been there for a couple of years, and then emigrated to the United States where her sister already was, I believe. In fact, I think her her sister, who's actually still alive, actually did experience internment as a Japanese citizen in the United States during the war. But I just have so many connections to that culture and that country. It's really unlike any other, and it never ceases to fascinate me in all of its many complexities and nuances. So I mm. think if I'm just giving a quick off-the-top-of-the-head answer, those would be mine. Uh, I can confirm, Paul, Japan is an incredible country. I definitely didn't go there for the history. I went there for the anime and big cities. Well, they but, love um, that. Yeah, they love that as well. But the history is incredible in Japan. And I'm going to share just one more. This is kind of my wild card. And it's not a country I know all too much about. And I, 
I imagine it's not really particularly a country you can visit that easily or it's quite off to be in track, but I think one of the most fascinating stories from history and something I'm really looking forward to re- uh, talking about ourselves is the story of Haiti and how Haiti became an independent nation. Wow, that's a now there's a wild card. That's an interesting It, it really is my that. wild card. So if you aren't aware, Haiti is the only country on our planet to gain independence via a successful slave rebellion. Against the French? Against the French, yes. Under uh, Napoleon. I can't, yes, I can't remember the guy's name. Toussaint... The, you can Google it. Just Google the Haiti, Haitian uprising. Haiti is a, I know it's, it's a somewhat deprived area. It's definitely an area of many struggles, but just look into its history and it's a fascinating place. And it's, like I said, it's a very well card off the beaten track. I'm sure most of the travel agents wouldn't advise you going to Haiti, but if, if I could, I definitely would. No doubt about it. And we'd like to thank our patron for submitting that question. And if you would like to submit a question for Patrick or myself, or both of us more accurately, to answer on the show, go to patreon.com slash 80 history podcast and begin donating on the $5 tier or higher. Submit the question in the thread or send the message to us directly on Patreon. And we'll most certainly end up answering it at some point on the show. And if you're simply interested in contributing to AD History Podcast, helping us grow and making the AD history you deserve, even a small minimum $3 tier contribution every month goes a very long way and you get a ton in return. And I would say the biggest highlights of this undoubtedly, Patrick, are getting new episodes 48 hours early. The very cool and very interesting, and we've gotten good feedback, Patreon director's cut of our episodes where it's a bit longer, there's some more sides, some more detail, and it just, what we say, gives a greater flavor of enjoying the show. And of course, Mm. what we just released recently, Patrick, The Best of BC, Volume 1. That's really cool stuff. That is such cool stuff. So yeah, Paul, you hit it all on the head there. Patreon is the best way to support AD history. Um, It's incredible. Just a simple $3 a month helps out in a huge, huge way. It helps us massively, undoubtedly. There'll be a link down below as to where you can join us. And as Paul mentioned, you get uh, podcasts 48 hours in advance. You get directors cut, and they are real good fun to make. I know I'm just saying exactly what Paul just said, but they are such good fun. We keep As we record these episodes, we're like, that would be good for the director's cut. We, like, we're, we're, we're making it much more of that in mind. Yeah, the gears are turning. Yeah, and Best of BC is such good fun, and it's so different, Paul. I was so amazed with the edit cut you did on that. It was such good fun to listen to. It's completely different to the AD history you know, but go listen to it. It's there on the Patreon. If you uh, have, if you're a membership on there, you'll find it pretty easily. Go give it a listen to. It's exclusively for you guys who are kind enough to support AD history on Patreon. Once again, there'll be a link down below so you go support us there. Yes, absolutely. And also a big thank you to our existing patrons for joining Odo's ADFI Army. Right now, you are helping us create more AD history and expanding our offerings. And we just couldn't be more thankful to those who have been so generous and want to see this show succeed. There's nothing like a patron. It's a truly incredible experience and connection and we absolutely adore ours. So thank you for that. But us here, are you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. 
This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And as always, thank you, Anna. And you know, and speaking of Anna, real quick, just as a quick aside, I don't know if you noticed this on Twitter, but she landed a really, really awesome role in doing voiceover work, I believe, for the newest Warhammer 40k game. She voices a character. I don't know if you saw that, but I I saw something about it. that's great to hear. Well done, Anna. Like we'll be like I remember when she was just performing for us. She was just our voiceover person. Now she's hit the big time. She's going to forget us, forget her roots. No, she's doing absolutely incredible work, Anna. Yeah, now she she's uh, an amazing talent, and you guys have been mm. enjoying her voiceover abilities for into three seasons now. So yeah. cheers, Anna. All the best from your friends here at AD History. But we transition into a much more serious and dour topic, to be sure. And we pick up largely where we left off in my segment, which, of course, is the demise of Severin Alexander. So, Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, this really dovetails perfectly. So, apologies if we go over some things we just talked about a little bit there, but this it literally perfectly dovetails into my section for today. And as we know now, the crisis of the third century has really started to kick off. And this was for a huge variety of reasons. Weak leaders, like we mentioned, uh, and also just a loss in faith in the Roman governing, governing system. And the empire was not only being attacked from the outside, but also from the inside as well. Just feces was hitting the fan. Let's just say that right now. And one emperor in particular sort of really began his reign within the crisis. And that was a man by the name of Maximinus Frax. And he was unlike anyone who had ruled before. This guy was cut from a completely different cloth. And we've encountered some very interesting creatures who assume that position. But I don't know that there were any that quite ruled with as much blood as he spilt, quite literally up to the neck. Is that correct? This guy knew blood. He knew fighting. He knew war because that's that was his background. But we'll get to him in a moment. Let's just do a quick recap of things. So as you know, Alexander Severus came into power 222 AD, rose over Elagabalus, uh, and he eventually wasn't too liked by everything. Uh, for everything he did. And as Paul mentioned, a certain uh, campaign against the Sassanids really didn't help help him too much at all. But as Paul hinted towards, um, his dealings with Germanic barbarians in the north. And this is so interesting. So instead of fighting these barbarians, he actually bought them off. He bribed them for peace. He was like, please, let's not fight. Here's some money. Just leave us alone. And this angered Rome. This is the empire. It wasn't that long ago when the Pax Romana's grand empire, and now it's bribing barbarians to leave them alone. It, it just sounds pathetic, doesn't it, Paul? 
it's definitely not the image of Rome that most people conjure up in their head to appease a barbarian tribe by literally buying them off. Now, let's be clear about this. This is a form of appeasement in the case of various forms of compensation. And one little thing I love to add, because we live in a day and age where when it comes to diplomacy, whether this nature then or today, where the word appeasement has really become a profanity. And we know the origin of, of that particular belief. But the lesson there, guys, is not that we never to appease. We appease all the time in our everyday life or into high stakes diplomacy or whatever the case. The lesson is not to never appease. The lesson is be careful who you appease. Yeah. And while this appeased the Germanic barbarians, the Roman military were incredibly angry about this. You know, they were the Roman military. They didn't want to buy off peace. They wanted to fight and claim dominance that way. And this really culminated, as you mentioned, in 235 AD, where Alexander Severus, his mother, and uh, his grandmother died early. Just Alexander Severus and his mother were killed by their own soldiers. And with the emperor dead, the soldiers declared one of their own as the new emperor, as ruler. And that was, of course, the aforementioned Maximinus Frax. And he is considered what we now call a the first of the Baroque emperors. And we're going to, trust me, over the next few episodes of AD History, you're going to hear a lot about these Baroque emperors. And we just need to understand this term quickly. So did the Romans wouldn't have been using this term unto themselves. This was coined by later historians. And uh, Baroque emperors are rulers chosen to rule by their respective armies. And minus the support of their men, they had no right to rule. You know, it's interesting that this term barracks emperor, because in a way, at least to me, seems like it kind of sugarcoats things because it sounds less like a barracks emperor, like I said, which is an incredible euphemism. And it sounds a hell of a lot more like Rome being ruled under a military junta. Yeah, it could definitely be seen like that. How many, especially in modern history, we have so many instances of a rulers taking over by military power. And this is just another example of that. And there are pros and cons to uh, having the military as your authority because people don't want to argue with the military. Having the army on your side gave you gives you quite some power, especially in ancient Rome. But you don't have much of else and you need way more than just military might to be emperor, especially in ancient Rome. And But this also opened the floodgates to a whole different kind of person to being emperor. You didn't you need to come from the patrician classes of Rome. People of incredibly humble origins could become emperor now because in in the Roman military, you could start at the bottom and work your way up. It was it was that sort of place. And this allowed the floodgates to really open for different kind of people. Um, and of course, ordinary working class, ordinary humble people ruling can be a good thing, but you needed more than just an army and some strength to rule Rome. I look at that and, and I hear that. And the first thing I think to myself is it sounds like meritocracy through brutality. You know, is this even a desirable form of meritocracy or, or is it merely the rule of the greatest martial might? You know, we live in a day and age where in many respects we're raised with values that largely embrace meritocracy, that it doesn't matter what you are. It matters who you are and who your talents are and you working and, and using them to build the life you want and achieve the goals and dreams that you have. 
And I think that's largely when we think of meritocracy, the idea that's in mind here, here, this, this just looks like blood sport, last man standing and the last man standing ultimately gets to call the shots. This doesn't really seem like a terribly desirable form of meritocracy. Part of me does agree with that. However, I don't know if it's exactly the last man standing. I don't think it's more to do with what your people want. If your army wants you as emperor, like they're more the ones, like they're still the ones deciding who gets to rule. These armies are the ones deciding who gets to rule exactly. It's not just these, it's not so much Maximinus Frack saying, hey, I want to be ruled. It's more his men saying, you're our ruler. And as good as if they could turn you at any moment or another army could waltz along. But no, I definitely agree with you. But this, this sort of changing of armies and people who wanted other people to rule explains to us why Rome got through so many of these barrack emperors during this crisis. And as I mentioned, this allowed people of all different backgrounds and walks of life to become emperor. And that was incredibly the case for Frax. He was born on the outskirts of the empire, somewhat in the east. And I read his parents were barbarians. And more specifically, his father was a goth and his mother was an Alan. I'm not saying his mother was called Alan. They weren't ancient nomadic tribes. So this guy was cut from such a different cloth to everything else, like to what had come before him. I think, like, think of the likes of Elagabalus, this like, wealthy, well-to-do child, and compare him with this guy, just chalk and cheese. Absolutely. I, I think about it like pairing up Arlie Ermy with Andy Dick. I mean, that's the kind <laughs> of thing I'm talking about here, which is it's just a funny a funny thought, but just to kind of mm. portray the picture, you're familiar with both of those, aren't you? Uh, the names ring a bell. So Arlie Ermey played Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket oh, okay. by, yes, yes. by Stanley Kubrick. And he was mm. also a Marine non-commissioned officer who served during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War, specifically also training. So he has this whole demeanor, and of course he passed away several years ago. And well, Andy Dick is Andy Dick. Yeah, I know the name Andy Dick definitely around about who, yeah. So chalk and cheese, at least yeah. on the surface. Yeah. And like I said, this guy came from such a crazy different background. He could barely speak Latin in his youth. Oh boy. And this shows us, yeah, this shows us just how different these barrack emperors were, especially when compared to the uh, patricians of Rome. And he was physically different too. Some of the descriptions you hear of this guy, you just look at his bust on Wikipedia and you'll see a big, huge sort of face and one report was he was eight foot six inches tall with like this what? massive yeah I, we don't know how true that is um there were some sources said that he uh, suffered from gigantism like my goodness we, we retrospectively like this is huge burly barbarian of a man and he was also emperor of rome like this is how much things have gone to shitpool like they've got a barbarian in charge i mean well, first off, the idea that this guy is over eight feet tall is just it, yeah. utterly mind-blowing. Yeah. That in and of itself is, uh, you know, makes him a very intimidating and dominating figure. And you combine that with his personality. This guy mm -hmm. must have been personally terrifying. He would have been. But however, his size and his, his general demeanor caught the attention of Septimius Severus. Mm, eye, eye out for talent, I see. Yeah, yeah. And he granted him a role in the military and then he actually set him up. So Franks was actually Severus's personal bodyguard and the two were reportedly really close with one another. They were quite good friends all in all. And 
Frax was deeply saddened by Severus's death, but continued to serve the Empire and specifically the uh, Emperor. And under Caracalla, he led various uh, centuries and legions in war, in battles. And while a fan of these emperors, as mentioned, someone he w- wouldn't have probably got along with was Elagabalus. So that's our good friend Elagabalus coming up again. And they just didn't connect, like I said, chalk and cheese, two completely different people from completely different lifestyles. They aren't going to connect. But he stayed a general under Rome, but he stayed far away from Elagabalus. He's like, I don't want anything to do with you. I'll protect this empire, but... I'm keeping you at arm's length. Exactly, yes. Frax, funnily enough, liked his successor, Alexander Severus. I guess because he had more connection with, uh, well, at least a name anyway, had more connection with his personal favourite of Septimius Severus. Alexander Severus actually liked him too, and he made Frax the commander of the entire Roman army. And we know, however, that it was, of course, this very army that would turn on Severus and in turn murder him. And it was this same army that declared Maximinius Frax their emperor. You know, this is always one of the issues that you have when you're a leader, especially if you're not in a system where a lot of these responsibilities and duties and, you know, various uh, spheres of responsibility are not clearly defined in which case Rome at this point has a lot of political holes, especially when it comes to governance and transfer of power and all this kind of stuff. If you are somebody like, say, Severin Alexander, handing over the command of the entire army to an, in, an individual is basically a single individual, to be sure, is like giving them a loaded weapon because you have handed them an amazing base of power that, quite frankly, can come back around and sting you in the rear end, which it clearly did for Severin Alexander. It's just one of those things where when push comes to shove, and we talked about it earlier, we've talked about it many times, the longevity of an emperor a lot of time is very much tied up in keeping the military on side. And we have the body count to prove it. Yeah, we do have the body count to prove it. So this, of course, led to Maxa Minus Frax's reign as emperor. And his reign started in 235 AD and ended in 238 AD. So luckily here, we have a reign that is entirely within the decade for today's episode. So that's good to know. And Cheers. To, yeah, to begin with, like despite being such a barbarian, he actually focused on things like infrastructure to begin with because he knew, I guess, as a general out actually in the field. He would have known how important things like this were to Rome. As you've sort of written in your notes here, logistics is important to know these sorts of things. You know, we use the term barbarian in the way that a Roman would, and obviously Mm. it has a clearly pejorative connotation. But just because his heritage isn't Roman doesn't mean that he doesn't have an innately strategic mind, which it seems like he most certainly possessed to one degree or another. Yeah, he he sort of he did know what he was doing, despite us saying he's just a mad savage. He knew the orbit of the empire and the emperor for so long you know, since Septimius Severus. He knew how things were getting getting done up there. And one other thing worth mentioning is he actually never set foot in Rome itself. This is an emperor em, emperor who was a soldier, eight foot something tall, never touched foot in Rome. That's just how far things have come by now. And that in and of itself. Definitely. I mean, he had his reasons, of course, 
But to me, I look at that and I say to myself, that is definitely a hole in regards to his ability to wheel and deal on the political side. And I Mm -hmm. say that because this is a paraphrase of a quote, but rampant paranoia is the disease of the despot. And one of the things that seems like an inherent mistake to me, especially since it also appears, as we'll talk about further, he had a real animosity towards the Senate. He certainly didn't trust them. But if he's so weary of them and doesn't trust them, you'd think he would have spent a little bit more time in Rome as a despot. Never leave your enemies home alone. No, yeah, that's, that's a very good way to put it. And you're right. He didn't trust the Senate and that was quite well founded because the Senate didn't like him. And that's kind of easy to understand. The Senate was so used to having their way and their emperors that all of a sudden... Well, sometimes. Like, we, yeah, sometimes. But like, they didn't want this guy. He wasn't from their world. This is a complete outsider all of a sudden being emperor of Rome. This guy wasn't made... To be doing this, that's why the Senate didn't like him, and that's where this paranoia uh, came from. And this paranoia was justified, as there were two attempts on his murder. And one of these I absolutely adore. So one of these attempts to get rid of him was to march him over the Rhine and then destroy the bridge behind him. How good is that? Like, that's the definition of burning bridges. Like, oh, go goodness. On, go uh, on, uh, 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 go- Patrick's in classic form, guys. <laughs> yeah. Like, red alert. Go- Go over there and we'll literally burn them so we can literally get rid of you like that. And I think that's that's a great thing. And as you mentioned, Paul, his reign was bloody. And anyone who he fought was even a little bit likely to betray him. Death, just instant murder. So that paranoia and that army didn't go well with one another. And being a military man meant Frack spent heavily on warfare. He was constantly campaigning and doubled the pay of soldiers. And this resulted in some benefits like I I read he actually did defeat some Germanic tribes up in the north however this extra money for the military had to come from somewhere and that somewhere was of course higher taxes on the people of Rome and this high taxation made Frax more unpopular with the people and not only were the senate growing tired of Frax the people were too and luckily a way to deal with him became apparent war is expensive Mm-hmm. especially if you're not getting the return on investment, which is always part of it. But I, I look where we're going with this, and all I can think to myself is no overtaxation without fatal usurpation. Yes, and usurping is on its way, and that's with the Gordians. So in 238 AD, a revolt broke out in the Roman province of Africa, and it was the landowners there who were declaring that their governor and his son were to be emperor instead. So like I said... This power really belonged with the people. It was the landowners or the military. They're the ones saying, no, we want them as emperor. And this father-son duo was Gordian I and Gordian II. And I've just written here, no connection to the knot. That's a different Gordian. whole different thing there. No relation to the famous knot that Alexander broke with his sword. <laughs> and the Senate were unhappy with Frax. And they jumped on this bandwagon and said, yeah, we want the Gordians too. You guys like the Gordians? That's good with us. We want them as emperor as well. And so this enraged Frax, and he set his sight on Rome. He was finally going to make his way to Rome and attack and kill the Senate that betrayed him. However, before he actually reached Rome, both the Gordians were killed, and they were killed by the governor of Numidia, Capulinius. He actually didn't like the Gordians, so challenged them in a fight, and he was actually also a loyal supporter of Frax. 
And it was in this battle with the governor of Numidia that Gordian II died. And Gordian I actually killed himself in grief of his son. So while this is brief, Gordian I and II are both considered fellow Baroque emperors of Rome and therefore as co-reigning from March 238 AD until April 238 AD. So they were roughly emperors for roughly a month. The Senate still wanted Frax out of this question, out of the equation, however. So they went, well, if the Gordians are going to die, we're going to have two of our own as co-emperors. And the Senate elected two senators called Papinius and Balbinus as the senators of choice. And they are also considered emperors of Rome. They are considered emperors of Rome from April to July 238 AD. So just keeping track here. So, so far in 238 AD, Frax is considered emperor. Both Gordians are considered emperor. And Pupanius and Balbinus are both considered emperor. That's that's five so far. And the people didn't care for these two, however. They liked the Gordians. And I'm curious why they like them. Is it simply that they weren't Maximinus? I imagine that one must have been a factor into it. Um, I should have I, I didn't research this too heavily, but they must have just been good governors, and the people of uh the African province just went, No, we want we want these guys to rule. They probably weren't happy with how things were going and they saw hey these two are doing a swell job of ruling us they should rule all of us and funnily enough this is something that's also going to come into play further on down the crisis so much so that spoiler alert some other local governors are going to be seen as big enough deals actually split away from Rome but that's for another time and so as I mentioned uh, the people they wanted a Gordian to lead them and luckily there was actually one more Gordian left that was Gordian III, who was Gordian II's nephew. I promise you, this is this is the last Gordian we'll be talking about. And to keep the people happy, the Senate declared Gordian III as their emperor instead. And his reign officially started in July 238 AD. And he actually lasted until 244 AD. So at this moment in history, that's actually quite a decent reign, like compared to all these other ones. So that means... We had the five emperors of the two Gordians, Frax, Pupinus, and Balbinius. Now there's another one that's six emperors within the year 238 AD. And this year is known as the year of the six emperors for a very clear reason. We have the year of the four emperors. Then we had the year of the five emperors. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have the year of the six emperors. What, what a show. What a show. Yeah. What a show. I don't, I don't know if there's a year of seven emperors. I guess history will tell us, but Rome was in a dire place right now. And speaking of being in a dire place, in the midst of all this madness over emperors in Rome, France was still just marching on towards the city. And he arrived in the city of Aquileia. And this is a city on the outskirts of modern day Italy. It still exists. It's very far from Rome. That's how far France had to come. And it was here that the power of Rome came down on him. And the siege here was long and brutal. The people of Aquileia were on the side of the Senate. They didn't want Maximinus as their emperor either. And as the battle dragged on, Frax didn't blame himself, but he blamed his generals for the failures in this battle and executed them all. And executing your generals is kind of going to enrage the rest of your army. And finally, Frax's army, the people who declared him emperor, they betrayed him too. And they killed Frax and his son in the middle of the night by beheading him. So 
yeah, they were fed up with this guy and they took these heads, put them on spikes and showed them to the town of Aquilea to see and to, yep, we're done with this guy. Look, his head's on a spike. We're done with him too. We hate him as well now. And then these heads were sent to the Senate to let them know that Frax was no longer an issue. And Frax actually died on May in May 238 AD. And by this time, the Senate already declared uh, Papinius and Balbinius as emperor. Something I'm curious about, just as a brief aside here, if you had hmm. to choose between the way Thrax went out being beheaded in the middle of the night or being murdered when you're on the side of the road taking a whiz, which would you choose? They they really, really run the gamut here. <laughs> yeah, like there's all kinds of fun ways to die. And something we're going to talk about in a moment, Paul, is about death and changing who's emperor, because that's something I want to sort of focus on here uh, in a moment. I think if I had to pick one of those, it would kind of be in the middle of the night. If I was asleep, I'd rather go in my sleep than die taking a whiz. Yeah, they're both pretty much an awful choice. You know, mm-hmm. I, I suppose the beheading in the middle of the night while you're asleep is a, a quicker way to go and certainly doesn't yeah. have quite the ignominy that Caracalla no. experienced. But, yeah. you know, these guys died the way they lived. Mm-hmm. And this just this chaos and lack of clear control really did help Rome plunge deeper into their third century crisis. And that's just, that's the volatile reign of Maximinus Frax, who I think is a really fascinating character in history and just, just so different. Like, I'd love to hear more about this guy. And I just think we're getting to this period of, while these emperors aren't as well known as like, as your Hadrians, as your Nero's, as your Augustus's, like they're really interesting figures unto themselves. And like, it just shows us how much Rome has changed. We've really gone a very, very long way. And, you know, the first question I have for you here, Patrick, is in your estimation, why was Rome, at least as far as you can tell, they didn't seem ready for a ruler that didn't come from either the patrician senatorial class or the equestrian class. And and I'm curious to know what your insights are on that, based on the case study we just discussed. Obviously, to this day, most world leaders come from wealthier backgrounds. But we do have instances of world leaders coming from poorer, economic, lower class, working class backgrounds, and they rise up. And I think Rome had very little class mobility. And while things aren't perfect today, the tools and the knowledge to become a ruler, whether that be a president or a prime minister, are somewhat more accessible today than they were 2,000 years ago. If you were born a pleb, yeah, by no way am I saying it's perfect today, but if you were born a pleb in Rome, you were most likely going to die. You know, you were going to die a pleb without touching you. You might be able to become... What was it in the Republic? What was the role for the plebs? Is it the tribute? Tribune assembly. The tribune, yeah. So there, things were, it wasn't terrible, but you were no way ever going to become consul or emperor. It just wasn't ready. And likewise, people from work, from lower class backgrounds, from the plebeian background, they wouldn't have been versed in the worst how to rule. Like we are now, like we, you can study, you can like Google like the ins and outs of economics today like an economics classes are available for a lot of people but like that wouldn't have been there like all maximinus frax really knew was warfare and then what came from warfare like understanding roads were important he wouldn't have had a more formal education beyond that you just wouldn't have been built and the tools and the accessibility to learn how to be a ruler wouldn't have been available to you 
The fact that this happened at all makes Maximinus Thrax, at least up to this point, a real aberration. He's a mm. makes him a real aberration. And the fact that he got there, and we've, we've talked about this at some length over the last two plus seasons, in that the Romans were very, very puritanical, were very, very touchy when it came to issues regarding upward mobility. They did not like or trust or very rarely accepted what they considered to be upstarts. So mm. even the idea that an emperor could come from a place that wasn't the Italian peninsula, that wasn't Rome, in the case of Trajan, was a big deal. Now, granted, Trajan had all the necessary exposure and experience and connections to Rome through his family, through his upbringing, through his military career. Maximinus Thrax did not have that. Uh, effectively, he came from nothing. And that in yeah. and of itself makes him extremely interesting within the context of Roman society at this time, which, as we know, is very, very touchy with anything regarding upward mobility. And the fact that he pulled it off at all, despite how he managed to do so, is definitely worthy of considerable note. But it definitely shows that while he was able to achieve it, part of the reason why he wasn't able to keep it. One other thing I said I wanted to share, Lighton, you mentioned it briefly there, and that was about the transition of power. And I think it's safe to say Rome, Rome had a had a bit of a problem. And I, one of the things, when I was looking into the crisis of the first century, I just Googled crisis of the first century causes and a Quora discussion came up. And I don't know if you know Quora. I think it's most people of, at this point do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, I, I kind of put it in the same bracket as Wikipedia, where it's in, interesting totally. information, but check. And someone said one of the key issues, one of the key causes of this crisis was Rome's lack of transitional power. And I never... I had never really thought about the transitional power as being like a tangible thing. I guess it's something a lot of us take for granted and don't even realize it's something that like needs to be thought about. Like we, but especially me and you, Paul, yeah. we both come from countries where it just happens and someone else gets elected. Well, obviously, recent examples, I'm not trying to like. No, we're not trying to get wound. into the politics of the press. No, 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 course, no. But... I mean, re 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 a recent example bucks this trend a little bit, but by and large, Someone wins an election, they go into power. But Rome did they not only was that an issue, they didn't have a foundation. They didn't have this thing. They didn't have an entrenched transitional power that well, sure, it was supposed to be children take over. It was supposed to be a hereditary title. But the I think I, I read like how many actual emperors died naturally and had their legitimate, naturally born, biologically born children take over. It's a minuscule amount. There was this huge problem with the transitional power in Rome. And th this has been a weakness of Rome's political system ever since the time of Augustus. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always been this question for the most part, for the most part about, well, who's going to take over when the current guy dies? And it's always, like I said, it is looking at back on the present, you know, we're, we're looking at very, at sometimes very different conceptions of what we considered a consensual rule. And, and for the most part, Rome had it together when it was the Republic. But when you get to this, leader-dominated society, which obviously Rome went down that course, most notably under Augustus. But you can look back at Julius Caesar, you can back, look back at Sulla, and they figured it out for a very short amount of time in terms of the adoption of certain individuals and how adoption is seen in Roman society. But I look at that more as 
using a technicality that cannot continually persist in, in a functional way. It's almost as if like their transition of power is just various loopholes. Like, oh yeah, that, that, yeah, it's just it's it's ridiculous, and that is such a you know, like yeah, it's just loophole after loophole. How can we get this person in power? Just set something up, set up a legit way. People become power. But yeah. yeah, it's just it's just fascinating. I never really thought about it. Like I said, it just never occurred to me that transitional power is a thing worth talking about or even worth thinking about how it's done. But so interesting. It it really is. And that's one of the reasons Rome, in many cases, perpetually, this is a, a chronic political wound for them, to be hmm. sure. You know, you mentioned transition of power in, in your country, in my country, and really for the most part, and, and even still in actuality, because we endured what we endured, but all the same, the greatest political accomplishment among many is mm. the fact that really this has happened uninterrupted from one elected leader, in this case, the in the executive, chief executive, mm. commander in chief, peacefully to the next one. And in the case in the case of Great Britain, obviously you have the Westminster form of democracy where it's parliamentary and there's major differences between our respective forms of democracy, but then we definitely have in common for the most part, to be sure, certainly after the glorious revolution, is that that transition of power occurs through democratic means and the consent of the governed. And in this mm -hmm. case, Rome, after Augustus, never really figured it out that you're right, they found loopholes. You know, mm -hmm. they found temporary ways around it. And when it worked, it, it seemed to work well enough. I mean, it worked well enough for almost a century until we got to Commodus. But it's amazing to me how the Roman elites would accept new leaders in a transition that they could so clearly see were not at all proper or prepared or right for the kind of power that they were going to inherit. And then sometimes how long they tolerated that. That still yeah. really gets to me. And so you can't call Rome a democracy by any means at this point. By, you know, it's really... It's really not. And one of its fatal flaws is this transition of power. And in our show so far, we've been seeing over two centuries of this. Mm. It's, it's amazing just, how it's they've just, adapted. Yeah. You just got to think back and wonder, like, if they did establish some sort of official transition of power, this is how we're going to do things. Just where where the Roman Empire would have gone. Like, it could have gone in so many different tangents. If they thought, say if they said, okay, here's how we're doing it. it say if it was like the British monarch, it's going to go to the eldest born. I where Rome would have ended up if that was the case. I mean, like Julius Caesar, of course, didn't have a legitimate elder bo eldest born, so he might have just died there and then. But he named Octavian. Yes, of course. So it could have it could have benefited him at certain points. Could have hindered them at certain points as well. It's just fascinating stuff to look into. Oh, absolutely. It, it's one of the one of the great political puzzles in terms of governance and seeing how Rome handled it over the long term. But it's a gaping political wound structurally, and I, I think it'd be hard to debate that. Yeah. Well, Patrick, as always, bravo, wonderful job. And we have and taken yourself. our first step into the crisis of the third century. And boy, it's only going to get crazier from here. <laughs> but it will also surprise you in other ways as well. But You'll have to listen to our next episode to find out why. You are quite right, Paul. Things are only going to get crazier. And I'm excited. Like I said, this podcast, so much of this podcast is us learning things for the first time myself. And I'm looking forward to seeing where this sort of goes. I, I know the broad strokes, but I'm looking forward to researching the nitty gritty of this crisis for myself. We are watching in slow motion the decline of one of the greatest powers in history. 
and it's going to take some very interesting turns from here. Bravo, Sir Patrick, Mr. Foot. And we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching adhistorypodcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage, at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.